Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Dr. Yael Ziegler is a senior lecturer at Matan and Herzog College. She is the author of multiple books on Tanakh. Her forthcoming book on Megillat Echa is scheduled for publication before the summer. Yael is a graduate of the Matan Scholars Program. Yael, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. How did you start on this path of learning and teaching Torah? Um, so, you know, when I grew up, I would say, quite honestly, that um, I didn't find my Judaic studies in school, in elementary school, even in high school, particularly inspiring. Um, when I arrived at Stern College, I, I actually began to see the beauty, the depth of Torah learning. Um, and I continued after college. I continued. I, I came to Israel. I was, I was actually always planning to be a lawyer. That was my career plan since I was 10 years old. I had, of course, a favorite uncle I'm who was a lie, lawyer. I'm not I could see that. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, my favorite uncle who inspired me, but okay. And uh, when I came to Israel, I said, before I go to law school, I want to take off a year and continue learning because I had found the learning at Stern College, you know, all the classes that I'd taken there. I found it to be really so exciting and so inspiring. And when I came to Israel, I came to Matan for the year to learn. And it was the second year of Matan. And uh, I, I had a friend, she was more of an acquaintance named Joy Rachlager. Zatzal. Unfortunately, yeah. she passed away. Um, and she, uh, we knew each other from several different informal education programs. And she wanted to get me into a classroom, which, you know, to this day, I'm not entirely sure exactly why. Um, and she, you know, she kept inviting me to come speak. And I kept saying, oh, no, no, I don't think that uh, teaching is for me. And and once she, she said, well, I'm going to America. And as a favor, would you substitute for me? Um, <clears throat> and I agreed to do so. I went into the classroom. I probably didn't sleep for a week beforehand. It was quite a, a, a frightening experience for me. I was, I was young. I was uh, 21 or 22. And, uh, you know, I came into this classroom very well prepared. Uh, and I gave a shiur and it was, it was, it was just transformative. I said, this is what I want to do. This is, this is going to be, uh, my career path. And, you know, I, I, I love teaching Torah and I felt that the interaction with the students and, you know, the excitement, the light in their eyes, it was something that was just so, um, it was so invigorating. And that was it. I pretty much never looked back. After that, I just continued learning. I, I went to get a degree at Bar Ilan and a uh, master's degree. Yeah, I went on to get the master's degree. I already had my BA from Stern, which was in political science, given that I was thinking of being a lawyer. Uh, I ended up with another degree in Jewish studies, in general Jewish studies, because by the end of my of my studies at Stern, I had taken so many Judaic studies classes, they said, Well, you know, you have a degree. <laughs> so that was that was fortuitous because then I was able to use that that to go on to my graduate studies, in, which I did in Tanakh. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so you started from then on your first teaching jobs were in seminaries? Yeah. Yeah. So I had substituted for joy in a seminary. It's no longer around. It's called Shayara. Um, I don't even know what that is. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it closed down in, in 
I don't know, maybe 1995, <laughs> a yes. really long time that ago. That was your first, your first. Um, uh, but then I, then I went, you know, I, I started working at Midrash at Moria and they were, um, you know, they were generous enough to actually give me a, a teaching course to, you know, to see if I could, if, if that would be something that would work out for them and for me and, and yeah, and then just continued there for many years. Right. Yeah. And who, who were some of your role models uh, that you think about or look up to? Yeah, throughout so, your career. So the first one that comes to mind is Dr. Brian Levy. She um, she was my teacher at Michlala, um, and then you know I, uh, she was my teacher here at Matan, um, and then we taught together at Midrashat Moria. Um, and aside from her love of Torah and her you know great knowledge, uh, there was also something else that was very important for me, being a young woman at the time and watching Bryna and having many different discussions with her about balancing home and 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 career, family life. you know, she was uh, a mother of many young children at the time, and how to balance that and how to prioritize. And you know, I think I really learned from her about, prioritizing family even when there was she was you know she was getting so much so much satisfaction from teaching Torah but um really role modeled how she prioritized her family and for me that was something that was really extremely important and something that always came up throughout my career um you know others other role models I I, I look at Rav Meidan as a role model for uh integrating uh, Chazal and rabbinic sources into Tanakh learning. I think he does this in a very creative way. I, I, I can't, I can't say that, you know, I, I or, or many people have the creativity of Rav Meidan, <laughs> but the very, the very idea of that kind of looking at the Midrash in order to find, you know, the deep shot of the text. That's something that is a, a very central part of my Tanakh study. And I, I very much look at Rav Meidan as a role model in that regard. I also look at Rav Meidan as a role model for humility. He's a, a very humble person. He uh, always knows how to learn from others. You know, when he speaks, he, he talks about that. He talks about, you know, his different teachers. Um, I felt that, you know, Rav Mordechai Sabato was a role model in terms of his comprehensiveness. He, 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 you know, in his classes, anyone who's ever sat in his classes, he does everything, right? He does uh, literary and structure and parshanud and midrash and close readings. And, you know, this was something that I, you know, I, I found awesome when I first uh, encountered him. And, and, you know, I continue to find, to, to see that as being something which is very much a model that I, that I look up to. Well, and in the time that you spent all of those years teaching uh, young women before you then moved on to teaching in Herzog, what, what were some of the trends that you noticed or perhaps then versus now trends in, in women's learning that well, have shifted? Well, you know, I mean, it, it was not just a shift from teaching women uh, to teaching both women and men, which I do today in Herzog, but also a shift from teaching Americans to teaching Israelis. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's a that's a, a much I think more significant difference. I mean, you know, when I look around today at um, at the world of Torah, I mean, I've been you know teaching in this world for approximately thirty years. And, you know, it, when, when I started out, it, it, it seemed like the beginning of a lot of things. It was the beginning of Matan and other programs were just starting to open. And, um, and, and, and now it, it just seems like there are opportunities for women to learn 
and to learn at a high level and to reach a level of expertise in many different fields and, and not just in universities. You know, I remember at the, at the time there was a lot of discussion about if you really want to become an expert in your field, where, which institution can you find to become an expert in your field? And, and, and there were women who felt, you know, um, especially at the beginning when, when the institutions were not yet, um, as developed as they are today. The only place that, they can go is university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot to learn from university. But today I think that there is a place for women in high level Torah institutions where they could be, they can become experts in a variety of fields. You yeah. know, they can become experts in, in Tanakh and in Machshavah. Shava and in, in Gemara and in Halacha and in Sod, you know, in Hasidut, in many different fields. Maybe even um, there's more openness to women, uh, you know, really kind of looking at different fields within the context of learning in Torah institutions. There are more opportunities for women than for, for men in that regard. You know, there's really, I think, a, a real range. A, a broader range, a broader yeah. range of places to study and things to study. Yeah. And that you're saying that they don't have to feel any more pushed into a corner of, if I really want to have something significant in my hand or a title in my hand, then I have to go into a university. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there are a lot of high-level Torah institutions today. And 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 also for a range of ages, you know, um, uh, there's, uh, uh, I remember once uh, here at Matan, I was teaching a group of women from year to year, and it was the same group. And and we decided at some point to turn our attention to Navim Rishonim. Yeah, we start with the Oshua, Shoftim. I go very slowly. Anybody who's ever been in my class knows that, you know, I can spend a lot of time on just a couple of psukim. Um, and it took us about, I don't know, I think maybe about six years to finish, you know, we only met once a week, yeah. but to finish Yoshua through Malachim. And when we finished, uh, we decided to have a siyum. It was really their initiative, the women's initiative. Everybody came in early. I teach at nine o'clock in the morning and they insisted on not missing a minute of class. So we came in early in the morning and we had this siyum and a woman approached me and she said to me, you know, I've made many siyumim in my life for my, you know, for my husband and for my sons and my grandsons wow. and my sons-in-law. And I have never attended a siyum for myself. And this was, you know, a woman older than me. Yeah. And it, it struck me. First of all, I thought that was a very beautiful interaction. Um, but it also, it struck me that the opportunities that, you know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, the, it's, it's a new time, lots of opportunities for young women, um, you know, who, who, who really have so many different institutions and fields that they can choose from. But, but I want to point out that these opportunities, we're quite fortunate that these opportunities are open for all ages, especially a place like Matan, which yeah. has, you know, really been able to, uh, open its doors to women of all ages in, in all different kinds of fields. Fields of Torah learning. Many, many of my students over the years here have said, so I'm redoing elementary school right now. <laughs> I'm redoing high school because yes. I, I didn't have those years. So that and that that's a certain population. And Matan also is a home for women of a younger population who it's clear to them that women go and learn Torah and they'll spend a few years doing it and there's a space for them to to do that. Yeah. And they can and they can do it very intensely here. Or 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 you know, there's lots of different opportunities. We yeah. have programs here at Matan, you know, Helchata and Ptichta and, and different programs which appeal to different people needs and and you know in many different areas of learning as we said and where where would you like things to go in the future what where's an area of growth that you think uh, could shift or, or do better sometimes I think that the communal expectations from girls young girls I'm talking about now not women 
oftentimes is not the same and, you know, sometimes finds expression perhaps in, you know, elementary school or in high school. Um, that's not a shift that one can bring about quickly, right? These things happen slowly. I think, you know, some of the things that have happened in the past 30 years have been remarkable shifts, right? Really th some wonderful things have happened that have increased opportunities for women in Torah, in, you know, in Avodat Hashem. Um, but, you know, some things take time. And one of the things that I would really like to see is maybe, you know, a shift in how the, in how the community, um, what kinds of expectations the community has from women, you know, or from, from their girls and, and what level of expertise they expect high school graduates to emerge with in terms of, of, of Limutara, not just, you know, expect, but, you know, hope and, I, and, I also and, think I want to interrupt you. I know yeah. of your sentence. Uh, I've said this before in our podcast, being the mother of four girls, the topic that's close to my heart. Um, I think also that the more that the mother generation are women who they expect themselves to learn, they'll expect it of their daughters. Yeah. If we have mothers who we still have many, right? The women who learn Torah on a regular basis, I would say we're still a little bit of a of a smaller group of women. and But the more mothers expect a certain baseline level of knowledge, Th then they'll expect it of their daughters. But how can they expect something of their daughters? How can they expect them to have literacy that they themselves still don't have? Yeah. So I think that it'll happen over time, but it's only as much as women learning Torah will then say, I want this to make, to go down to the younger generation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the shifts that I've watched take place is how many communal shirim there are, yes. how many yes. shuls want to bring in scholars. You know, when I was a child, I don't remember the concept of a scholar in residence. And if, if, if there was, it wasn't necessarily someone who was an expert in Torah. You know, you could bring in somebody who was an interesting speaker. And today, I think that there's a, a tremendous excitement about coming to Torah Shirim um, that has filtered beyond the, you know, let's say small group of of women who are have have devoted um their lives or or, you know, as you said, you know, learn Torah uh, you know, intensely, every day yeah. intensely. Um, and, and that is a shift that I do expect will filter out towards uh, the way that the community reg regards the, the, the young girls going through the school system. Um, Just had this image yeah. as you spoke of the Torah regaining its crown, meaning I don't know if it's because there's so much more knowledge out there, so we want to make sure we fill our knowledge with Torah knowledge, or it's because Dafyomi and all these renaissances of an expectation that everybody has a certain level of education, but there is that sense that, I mean, I can even say about my own family that 25 years ago, parents, relatives, that they didn't learn. It wasn't, and I'm saying as a, from a modern Orthodox background, and as they got older, it was very clear people started doing dafiomi, and, and it wasn't just a matter of I wasn't available because I was raising kids. It was a mind shift. It was a mindset shift. Yeah. And there's some there's something more in the air that people say, no, we, we, we want to make this more a central part of our life. I think there's probably a lot of sources for it. I don't know where. But. Yeah. I wonder if some of it has to do with Rav Soloveitchik's influence in the, in the you know, American Jewish community in particular, where, you know, he put such an emphasis on Limud Torah as the vehicle to Avodat Hashem. Mm -hmm. And if it is, in fact, a vehicle for Avodat Hashem, or, you know, the primary vehicle, or one of the primary vehicles for Avodat Hashem, then I think, as Rav Soloveitchik, you know, uh, um, often said, then, then not only is there no 
no reason to prevent women from being part of this, but there's every reason to encourage women whose avodat Hashem is so important, you know, for the for the fabric of the community and for themselves, of course, as an individual as well. Um, and and th- that shift that we saw happen may have emerged from uh, Rev. Salvechik's influence, and there may have been other. I'm sure that there were other factors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said one one shift you'd like to see is a, more of an emphasis on female education when they're younger, that they'll yeah. be more involved in Torah learning, and then also their growth into Torah learning as an adult will also be more natural. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I think I think I would be I'd be very excited to see if there were um, more women writing. I know women are tend to be very um, hesitant you know, and burdened with yeah. many many um, responsibilities, and writing I think does require both a certain amount of time and a certain amount of you know quiet. And, and uh, you can't um, see, but I am nodding and rolling my eyes <laughs> in great understanding. <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking I see about. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but 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 writing and 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 leaving behind uh, a bookshelf of women writers, it, it makes a contribution to women. I'm actually scholarship. tearing thinking about it. By the way, the, I'm sorry. I'm tearing thinking about it. It's yeah. going to happen. It's happening. Absolutely. But it, it's, it's. I think that there time. needs to be. I've, I've heard people talking about it in you know in different context to, to create programs and and context and yeah. you know hopefully also funding uh to encourage women to write because yeah, you know Safaria had had yes a, that's right yeah that's they have right. this year there's a fellowship program and they're going to do it again to encourage to teach women to give them tutorials and to encourage them to to write yeah and i know that koran you know um, and magid has very much um yes. Uh, encouraged and 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 actively sought uh, women to be part of their series, their their Tanakh series, and and other other books. Uh, you know, and and I think you know this 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 uh, the the world of um, of Torah can be so enriched by you know you, you go to all these shirim um, by women and you see the level of scholarship that is out there, and then to be able to access that in writing. And you know, I think that that that's a, a real contribution both to the Jewish bookshelf and to the and to the perception of the contribution of of women to to uh, to Torah. I know that there are also halachic journals that ten years ago, maybe fifteen at this point, weren't open to women writing in them, and now the women are allowed to write in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have to have women who are comfortable enough writing in the journals, which is its own its own piece. But there's definitely, there's more opportunity. And now we have organizations seeking out women to come and write. There are definitely women who can write. I don't think that that's the issue. I think that women within themselves sometimes create, there are objective difficulties. And sometimes we also have difficulty having confidence in our voice and knowing that it's it's worth putting out there in the public arena. Well, I would say in general about writing that because you know, because you, you're leaving something permanent, um, it, it, it is very hard to get to a point where you say, okay, that book is finished, right? It's a famous uh, brisker hesitation to, to to put out a book for that reason. And and I, I really do understand that. I, I think that it, there's a certain humility uh, and a desirable humility that goes along with that. At the same time, at some point, you know, it's important to uh, to, to make the contribution, even if you understand that it's a task, which is one that is uh, daunting. Yeah, this is actually a perfect place to talk <laughs> about some of your writing. Uh, you have really transitioned into a lot of phenomenal writing that's touched many people in the past couple of years. So I'd love to hear about how that transition has been for you, uh, balancing it with your teaching and and the different kind of creativity that comes up in writing. 
Well, I'll start by saying it wasn't a natural transition. I think many uh, teachers are, are perceive themselves, rightly or wrongly, as orators, and um, and that shift is not as obvious or as natural as one might assume. Um, I, I think that that for me, um, the beginning of writing happened when I had to write my PhD, which was, you know, uh, something that. In order to get the PhD, you have to write a thesis. Unfortunately, it's and, part of the uh, process. Right. <laughs> and uh, anyone who's done it, as, as you have, knows that that's, you know, that's a, 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 that's the central part of the process. And it's not always easy, uh, or it's, I should say, always not easy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, writing, I think, became, and, you know, once I finished my PhD, I said, okay, now I'm going to um, maybe think about writing one of my courses or taking one of my courses and trying to turn it into a book. And um, while it wasn't a simple transition, it has been, I would say, altogether wonderful in in, in several ways. First of all, it, it forces you to be more precise, right? It forces you perhaps also to be more comprehensive in your research. Um, it forces you to make certain decisions, right? Uh, what kind of audience are you looking? Yes. Are you looking for? Who are you talking to? Um, what what kind voice, of voice do you want to bring? Exactly. Yeah. What kind of voice? And and especially for for me, um, uh, coming from two worlds, a world of academia and a world of Torah, uh, how to balance those two worlds and how to figure out what what the ultimate goal was, right? Was I was I was I trying to give over information or was I trying to give over inspiration? And and if I was trying to do both, which you know, I, I think I was trying to do um, how to how to strike that balance, and and you know that's definitely something that was. On my mind, I, I don't teach Torah in order, you know, as an intellectual exercise. I don't do that in the classroom. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing that in the book either. And it's kind of easy, I think, in writing to kind of fall back on an academic style, um, especially, I guess, if you're coming from the world of, of writing your PhD. And, and, and that's not a style that I think is always one that speaks to people, that speaks to people's heart. I think also that a significant difference is that when we come in to teach people, we prepare ourselves also mentally, right? I know that I have to not be yelling at my kids two minutes before I'm going to get on a Zoom teaching. Just as an example right now, I need to, to put myself in a space. But when we're writing, we're not always writing from an inspired place. And so it's, it's, it's different. And it requires so many more hours in a row when you're writing. And so if your goal is to move people or to inspire them or to make them love Torah through what you're loving, it's 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 a different it's a different art of what you need to bring to the writing process. Yeah, I, I would add to that and say that when you're teaching, well, at least before Zoom, <laughs> you had human beings in front of you. Yeah, and as you teach, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if students realize how much they uh, the teachers play off of of their responses and you know the light in their eyes and the joy in their faces and I I watch my students and even on Zoom it's very important. You live to off me. of the woman who keeps her camera open, yes. who's nodding when you're teaching. Yes. Like, somebody's listening to me. <laughs> Let me publicly thank those people who leave their cameras. Let's on. thank the nodding people with the window with the yes. cameras open. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. But you know, but when you're writing, th there are no human beings there. So you're writing in your own personal space, and um, it is important to keep in mind what your goals are and and who you're speaking to, and that that was definitely part of the process. But you know, I think really just just um, uh, finding the 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 right kinds of formulation and being precise and writing in a way that is it, it forces you a little bit to be more accountable. You know, not totally. that teaching you're not accountable. No, but it's, but, it doesn't get erased after, and yeah. it doesn't just get lost in the sentence and. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, your writing is is really phenomenal. I just I I just want to say I've never said this to Yale before, so this is a. It's really it's really beautiful, and it really does put within it also the clear academic precision with the clear love of Torah. I mean, your goal that you set out it comes through loud and clear. Wow, really, it thank does. You. I'm so happy to hear that. I'll add one more thing here, which is that when you do write. Um, you know, the, you don't know who you're going to um, affect because the, the book is out there. And um, it's that part has been very gratifying. You know, I, I, I one day, this was actually quite a while ago, I got an email. It was, it was, it was not signed and it was just a question. And I thought it was something like, you know, uh, why did Root give her baby to Naomi at the end of the book? That sort of question. Yeah. And I looked, and I said, this is a, a bit of a strange email. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, address and there's no. So I, I looked up the email address and it turned out to be a 13 year old boy wow. who wrote me this question. And I, at the, at the time, I, I think I think I actually was emotional, you know, Adma'ot. Like I remember my response was was it's just an amazing it's an amazing experience to 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 write a book that was then um that then inspired a a, a teenager, you know, to to write me a letter and um and and that sort of experience. I mean, that's an extreme example and not not one that has has repeated itself particularly. But you know, I've gotten but some. Then there's really... all the thirteen-year-old boys who haven't written you an email, but they've written. <laughs> yes, hopefully, but you know, but but that definitely is is part of the experience of writing a book is that you know you are reaching uh, maybe a, a broader um, audience than than in teaching. Although today, you know, with social media, the teaching also has turned into something which is beyond the confines of the classroom. Um, but but a book is is you know a different kind of contribution. As I said, you know, just having a bookshelf with you know women in Torah. I think itself is an important contribution. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about my contribution. I'm, I'm sort of trying to encourage um, yeah. other women, and I know other women who are currently writing, and I, I've, I've been watching women around me add their their books uh, to the list. And you know, I hope Yosefa, you will soon. Uh, is is your doctorate going to be coming out as a book, or is that? Uh, I don't know, a, but I have okay. I have other other books in my saved in my brain yeah okay so uh, <laughs> uh i'm, I, I I'm waiting writing for it. as my first degree was in writing so oh, I, yes, I, I really i love yeah. writing but yeah. uh and for yourself for the future are you looking to to continue writing alongside your teaching um so one of the wonderful things about being in academia is that you get a sabbatical yes. um i i wrote uh seven years ago i had a sabbatical and, and i wrote Megillat Echa. now it, it is a seven-year process it's only going to be coming out in about in oh, about wow. a month or two you wrote that um, seven years ago yeah i mean i started it when i say yeah. i wrote it you know when did you write roots it took me seven years i mean you know it's wow. it's the kind of thing where you start writing it and and you add to it and and it went out on on the virtual Beit Midrash as a weekly right. series. And then, you know, people often think, oh, when you write a weekly series, all you have to do is kind of stitch it together, then it becomes a book. Right, like, and, of course. You know, five hundred <laughs> hours later, you've 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 turned it into something which is more more uh, uh, you know more seamless. Um, so a pretty similar process happened with Megillat Echa. Megillat Echa was a, a, a harder book to write in in I, I think in. For obvious reasons, yeah. Root is a story. It's a beloved story. It's poetry. It's it, and and Echa is not just poetry. It's poetry about destruction. Yeah. And 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 you know, one of my goals in writing the book was to show how the Tanakh um, 
offers consolation for, and, and Echa is not filled with consolation, but Echa is placed within a canonical context of consolation. One of the remarkable things in the Tanakh is that the Tanakh doesn't end with the destruction of Yerushalayim. It ends with Shivat Zion, with the yeah. return afterwards. And when you look at Megillat Echa within that broader context, and you see the conversation that's going on between Echa and the prophecies of consolation in Yishayahu, you know, at the end of Yishayahu, and you understand that Echa is, is, is part of a broader uh, human experience, and certainly a broader national experience. I mean, Am Yisrael has gone through tragic national experiences, and I, I think Echa is, I mean, it's not exactly a how-to for how to deal with it, but it is in a sense. But you're also so. saying that within within the context of Tanakh, it reminds us, like all of the difficult things we go through, that this is a point on a timeline but it's not going to end here, that there, it always will move forward from here. It's low and it's sad and it's depressing and it's all of those things, but that, but that at a certain point we move on and, and just like we move on as, as a nation, we move on also as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And the center, the central parak in, in Echa is of course about the individual experience, yeah. but it's not just moving on. I think that Echa also teaches us how to grow through difficulties and that's that's also an extremely valuable lesson. You know, we don't we don't move on unchanged. Yes. And uh, and and mining echa for some of those lessons and some of those messages was I felt both a, 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 a it was a bit of a burden in 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 a good sense. And it was, I felt the responsibility and the uh, towards the text and also towards the readers. Um, that Echa should be something which is a useful book. And, and because it's wow. been, because of its difficult language and its difficult subject matter, it's not as well known a book or as an accessible, as accessible a book as, as Root. Um, so it had its difficulties, but it was overall, it was, it was a, a wonderful experience. I feel very fortunate to have, to have been able to, uh, to, to, to write this book on Echa. Yeah, Ellen, in each of our episodes, uh, I ask everyone to bring a text uh, that speaks to them, inspires them, informs their life or their teaching. Uh, please share with us the text that you brought with us today. Okay, so uh, this is one of my favorite midrashim. I'm very, uh, in general, attached to the world of midrash and the world of chazal. And one of the things that I found particularly in Echa which is chazal's um, midrashic book on Echa, is that chazal, who were speaking to their own constituents who had gone through a difficult chorban of their own, uh, they were trying to use Echa in order to give hope and also to give messages of rehabilitation and how like to- Like what you're trying to do in your book. Like what I'm trying to do in my <laughs> book, uh, certainly inspired by Echa Rabbah. And um, uh, so I brought for you one of my favorite midrashim, um, which is on a pasuk in Parak Gimel, Zot Ashiv El Libi Al Kain Ochil. This I will put on my heart, this I will think about, and therefore I will have hope. And Chazal want to know, what was it that gave Am Yisrael hope during this very difficult experience, or gave the Gever hope during his very difficult experience? And the, the Midrash brings a mashal, mashal mahadavar domeh, it's a parable, to what is this thing likened? La melech shenasa matrona, v'chatav la ketuvah meruba, v'amar 
אמר לה, כך וכך חופות אני עושה לך, כך וכך עגבנות טובות אני נותן לך. Right, so the, the, the king gave her a כתובה, and he said, basically, in case of divorce, uh, you know, which I don't intend to divorce you, but in that case, I would give you this amount of wardrobes and these amount of treasures, and that is an indication of his great love for her. Now, at this point, the parable goes on and says, Right, the king, as kings do, he went off to a faraway land, and he became delayed there. Right, the, the, the neighbors of the king's wife came into her. Right? So the, the, uh, the neighbors would come in and they would mock her and they would say to her, the king has left you, he's gone away, he's never coming back. I mean, apparently he was gone for a long time. And her response, the wife's response was, right? she, was she would cry and groan. פותחת ומוציאה כתובתה, וקוראת ורואה בכתובתה, כך וכך חופות אני עושה, כך וכך עגבנות טובות אני נותן לך, right? So she'd go into her house and every time she was, you know, inconsolable, she'd go into her house, she'd open the ketuva and she'd be consoled, right? She'd see the great love that her husband had for her. מיד הייתה מתנחמת, and immediately she would become consoled. לימים, after many years, בא המלך, the king came home. אמר לה, and he said, ביתי, אני תמה. Right, he said to her, I'm, I'm amazed by you. How did you wait for me for all of these years? How did you maintain your confidence in our relationship? Amralo, Adoni HaMelech, Ilmalek Tuva, Miruba Shenatata, Shekatavda Venatatali, Kvar Ibduni Shrenotai, right? Were it not for this great Tuva that you gave me, then my, my neighbors would have already caused me to lose hope, right? And the Midrash now goes on and explains the parable. I think that the explanation is remarkable. The explanation is as follows. Right? So the idolaters, and I think that there's a hidden reference here to Christians, right? Uh, especially those who believe in supersessionism, yeah. mm-hmm. that, that, you know, the, the destruction of the Mikdash suggests that God has abandoned the Jewish people and chosen another nation. So here we have uh, kind of a reference to that. Right? Your God has hidden his face from you and he has taken his presence away from you. He is never coming back to you. And Am Yisrael, of course, they're in a terrible galut, right, of, of, of you know, of, of many years. And they're watching their non-Jewish neighbors around them prosper and succeed. And in the, in the meantime, you know, we know that the conditions of the diaspora were not always easy conditions. And so that, that kind of mockery of their non-Jewish neighbors in the background telling them, well, God has abandoned you, it must have resonated with them in a yeah. very difficult way. Mm-hmm. And so the Midrash goes on and says, mm-hmm. They cry, they groan. Right, 
ומוצין שכתוב ופניתי אליכם והפרעתי אתכם ונתתי משכני בתוככם והתהלכתי בתוככם והן מתנחמים. Right, so Am Yisrael, they come into the shuls, they come into the Batei Midrash, they read the promises of God to the Jewish people in the Torah, and immediately they are comforted, they're consoled. Now, the Midrash goes on and describes the Acharite Yamim, and, and, and it's, I think it's a beautiful ending. Lemachar says the Midrash, tomorrow, kshayavo keitz ha when the time for redemption will come, God will say to Israel, Banai, אני תמה מכם, my children, I am amazed by you. Hey, אחים, תמתם לי כל אותן השנים. How did you wait for me for all these years, all those difficult years of the diaspora, all those years of misery and persecutions? How did you continue to maintain your faith in my fidelity, in my allegiance to you? והנה אומרים לפניו, ריבונו של עולם, אילולי תורתך שנתת לנו, כבר איבדונו האומות, right? Were it not for your Torah, that you gave us, we would have already been lost among the nations. We would have been lost by the kind of interactions that we had with the other nations in the diaspora. That's why it says, it is this which I will place on my heart. Right? So, I put the Torah on my heart and therefore I continue to have hope in God. And I think that there's something remarkably um, insightful about this. Uh, when Chazal write this, it's of course at the beginning of the years of the diaspora, but the fact that Limud Torah um, and, and, and Batei Knesiot, right, the experience of, of community, communal tefillah, communal avodat Hashem, both in tefillah and perhaps especially as this Midrash seems to be pointing out in learning Torah and connecting with God's promises in the Torah, in remembering, you know, what we said before, which is that the story of Eicha is not just um, is not meant to be read in a vacuum, right? It's about not just experiencing the suffering, but also seeing that there is another stage and that God has continued, you know, to promise us redemption. These are the secrets of Am Yisrael's success in the diaspora for all of those years. And I think that this is, this is a Midrash that has just, you know, accompanied us for all of these years and represents one of the secrets of, of our survival in the diaspora. Yeah, it's really, it's phenomenal. I think also what I, I love about this Midrash is that it frames it frames Limut Torah as something that's supposed to be a safe house and something that's comforting, right? It's like those, it's almost like when someone is someone has passed and you go and you smell their clothing. So in this case, she went and read her ketubah because she was missing him and she wanted to remember everything that he promised and in this case, give her hope. But it also frames Limut Torah that it's something that is supposed to be done from a place of of love and of nechama and that this is a safe house that I go to to connect with God when the world around me makes me feel sometimes less connected to him. Yeah. And so it's it's supposed to be that that anchor. And it's Lulei toratcha sha'ashuai az avati be'oni. Right, that, that's, I think, really, what it, yeah. we're not for the Torah for, as, you know, my, my pleasure, my love, my invigorating experience, then, you know, I, I might have been lost in, in my affliction, in my misery. And that's definitely something I think that is part of the Jewish experience, part of the experience of the Jewish people throughout the generations. I'm feeling like 
wrapped right now <laughs> in a in a warm, beautiful blanket. Well, well, maybe I'll just take that in a different direction and yeah. just say something which I, I think we're very fortunate to be part of, which is that there's been a tremendous explosion of growth of Torah learning in the last hundred years, and 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 the return to Israel, I think, has injected. Uh, both a new kind of excitement yeah. and even new opportunities, right? We're, we're living a much more seamless kind of Torah life where we're figuring out how to not just be learning Torah, but living Torah in a different way. And, I, you know, it's something and that we're I see. speaking the language of Torah, yeah. which is, I think, a huge piece that undercuts something much deeper and rooted in our spirit. It's much more than what movement does it create, but we're 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 in the we're in the right place. It's just it's moving everything forward in a much more organic way. Definitely. I mean, the language. I, I could say as a Tanakh teacher, the ability to to yes. to, to learn Torah, yes. to learn about the Tanakh stories in the places where yeah, they happen. And go there, yeah. Um, but or also, tell my kids, Kevin Rachel, right? You see it from the window. Yeah. I used <laughs> well, maybe to it's not that, but <laughs> I used to tell my children because I live in in, yeah. in Gush Etzion. I used to say, "Guess which Mizmorei Tilim David wrote under our house, <laughs> right?" And they would always say, "Which, which?" And you know, I'd make up something, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, it's not just that. I think it's also um, being autonomous, the Jewish yeah. people having sort of re reacquired what I like to refer to as Torah David, which is the Torah of autonomy, which is which is not simple. It's it's a it's a complicated. They're affair. not the aguna in Rashi's commentary in Shir Shirim. This is mm -hmm. a real a real reference here. But in in Rashi's commentary in Shir Shirim. She's in Aguna. She's stuck yeah. in Galut, and she is abandoned. and And all she could do is remember how life, how good life used to be, and and that whole image has completely shifted for us. Yeah, yeah, but 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 also just I think even in terms of uh, the kinds of things that we're thinking about as we learn Torah, because they are really coming to life before our eyes. I, I hear it with my children, you know, my children who are young adults now, when they talk about Limud Torah, they talk about it also within a much more seamless context of, this is part of my life, it's part of my everyday existence, going to the army. I mean, I have a son who got his Madim yesterday, so I saw oh, my, wow. I know, I saw my 19-year-old in a Madim, he, he's, he, he's only going to do Gius in another month and a half, Be'ezran Hashem, right, God should protect him and all of our chayalim. But, you know, I, I, I watch my children be part of a Jewish life, which, is, which brings learning to life. In 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 a very um, in a very broad and comprehensive way, um, and that's that's an exciting time. And I think it represents it's it's one of the reasons that there's been a, a certain kind of of reinvigoration. I mean, you know, as I said, based on this midrash, I think Torah learning has been the source of our success and our survival in the Galut. Um, and I think as we move into this new period of Jewish history, this new and wonderful and, you know, really just remarkable period of Jewish history, I think Torah learning continues to be, um, you know, our guide and, and, and our comfort and our, um, you know, and, and what, what really gives us motivation and, and experience and understanding. Yael, before we unfortunately have to end this conversation, I wanted to ask you a few quick questions in our in our lightning round. Uh, what book is currently on your nightstand? 
Okay, so uh, right now I'm reading a wonderful book by Hill Halkin. It has a bit of a difficult title. It's called The Lady of Hebrew and Her Lovers of Zion. Um, it's a hard title to remember, but it's a it's a, it's really a great exploration of um, the early Hebrew writers and how they um, both you know what their inspiration was for writing and what their contribution was to the beginning of Zionism. And it's really just I mean he's a great writer, Hill Hawken, phenomenal. Because I'm enjoying this book yeah. so much. If I you just, haven't read him yet, just take all those books out of the library yeah. and enjoy yourself. That's what I was about to say. I was about <laughs> to say that because I'm enjoying this book so much, I just ordered his book on Jabotinsky, yes, which I which I haven't that. read. Yeah. Uh, but I have read him before, and, and I'm really enjoying that. I just finished a wonderful memoir on Zimbabwe, which I, I really like reading about other cultures. I mean, I know that you know the Hill Hawken book suggests otherwise, but I, uh, one of the things I find about reading, and you know, I really love to read because it opens it opens the world to you know it opens your eyes to worlds and cultures that that you never knew about. So, I remember uh, when yeah. I was your student that you you always spoke about books you were reading and really? you were always borrowing books from people and and I I remember that you you would bring that up a lot in your teaching. Um, who would you like to sit down with for a cup of coffee? <laughs> for a cup of coffee. Um, I guess I, I, I consider myself pretty fortunate to be surrounded by people I love, by wonderful family and wonderful friends. Um, and those are the people that I would, those are the people who I do sit with for coffee. And those are the people who I would like to continue sitting with uh, for coffee. If there's someone who I can't uh, sit with for coffee right now, who I would like to, it would be my siblings in America, um, my grandfather, who, um, you know, Be'ezrat Hashem is turning 100 in, uh, in, in wow. a month. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I've been prevented from seeing them on a regular basis as, a, as I'm accustomed to. But, you know, I, I, I love my community. There are many people in my community who, with whom I can share wonderful conversations and, and do. And, and, you know, I, I love to sit with my children for coffee. I love to sit with my husband for coffee, you know, my, my in-laws, my father and, and, and my stepmother. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky because I do get to do so. What is your favorite tefillah or most meaningful tefillah right now? I love this question. <laughs> uh, There's so many tefillot. Um, I love the tefillah that, uh, that we say in the morning, mm-hmm. I love that tefillah. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the tefillah, uh, a tefillah for humility, which is mm-hmm. something that you know I, I consider to be a very important midah. Um, I love all of the tefillah that pray for success in Limud Torah, whether it's Birchat Torah or, again, what we say at the end of Shona Esrei, Petach Libi Techa, what we say before Shema, right, Avinu Avarachaman, right, Amrachem Rachem Aleinu, right, to give us a Tein Belibenu Bina. Um, I love, I love Lechadodi. I love the tefillah that describes Geula and all of the language that it calls from Yeshayahu. Um, it's I love- currently the only song that my two-year-old will let us sing before she goes to sleep. So. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I can no shma. No shma. I'll say one more that yes. I know. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe, probably many of these answers are conventional answers. I, I happen to love Shir Shel Yom of Yom Sheni, which is Mizmor Memchet. Uh, I love many of the Mizmor Etilim and the way that they are incorporated into tefillah, especially on special occasions. I mean, you know, who doesn't love Mizmor Kufzayin, which we say on Yom Atzmaut? So, you know, really, this is not a good question for your lightning round, Yosefa, I'd like to say. Next time, I'll put it into the main, the main yes. frame of the conversation. Yeah, what is something that people think about you that isn't true? 
Um, you know, this question presupposes that I know what people think about me, <laughs> which I don't. And, um, you know, maybe it's better that way. Um, um, I don't know, perhaps people think that all I do is Tanakh. And um, I mean, I know you know, and you said that, uh, that, that I love to read. I love to travel. I love to spend time with my family. I love to relax with my family. Um, I, I, when there wasn't Corona, I was fortunate enough to travel between semesters every year. I would always take a child with me and we would go to Disney World. I have a lot of boys, so we'd go to basketball games. I can't say, I can't say that was my favorite part, but I, I did what a mother has to do. So, yeah, so I was. If you can go to one place right now, where would you like one? to travel? One, no, only one, yeah, <laughs> only, only, only one, only one. Again, I don't know if this is the right lightning round question. <laughs> um, so I guess I'd have to go with Egypt uh, oh, because wow. it's so close, but it's so far, it's pretty dangerous. I would love to see <laughs> I would love to see the pyramids. I would love to see Abu Simbel. I'd love to be in the Valley of the Kings. Wow. You know, these are these are um, some really impressive places. And uh, again, so close, but so far, um, yeah. Yes, any hidden talents? <laughs> um, not many. <laughs> <laughs> All of your talents we know about. <laughs> um, I, I would say uh, I love to cook. I don't love to bake. I don't like to measure things, but I really love to cook. And during Corona, especially, I've, you know. Um, Were you the woman posting muffins on her Instagram no, every I Monday? No, I don't post anything. <laughs> and as I said, I don't like to bake. Sorry. But right. I've, you know, I, I have had a full family at home and they're adults. And um, yeah. I find that it's, it's, it's a bonding experience. You know, during the course of the day, everyone's on their own Zooms. And then we come together. And if you come together over a, Home cooked meal with with love and I and I enjoy it. I enjoy the the cooking. I can't say I enjoy the cleaning up afterwards, but yeah. but I, I enjoy the cooking and and uh, my husband always says I should write a cookbook of how to make Shabbos in less than two hours. So that's the uh, I'll buy it and, right? I'll, and then I'll give it to Zevi. <laughs> right. So that then you could actually you know then 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 you'd have a bestseller right because uh, everybody would like to do that. Why does Zevi do the cooking in your house? Um, we I cook a lot during the week, and he will do more of the Shabbos cooking. Mm -hmm. I'm usually burnt up by then. Yeah. Um, I think we'll we'll close our conversation with uh, with one final question. Uh, what is something in your life that you're grateful for right now? I'm extremely grateful for family. I'm extremely grateful for extended family, for my close family, my nuclear family. Um, very grateful for friends. I'm very. Uh, wonderful friendships from childhood and from my community. I'm very grateful to have a community of colleagues and partners in building a life of Torah in, here in, in, in Israel, in Gush Etzion. Uh, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to teach Torah in the land of Israel at the time that we live. I'm very grateful to live at this time, to be a woman uh, uh, in the world of Torah at this time, you know, when 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 Am Yisrael has returned to the land of Israel and we're building the country. Um, and, you know, yeah, these are the things that I'm grateful for. Yeah, El, thank you so much for being here today. This was really a, a pleasure and an honor to sit and talk with someone who was a uh, also a teacher of mine, and uh, at this point, it's it's just funny sometimes when we overlap with institutions, and so it's really, really an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yosefa. It's been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. 
Thank you to Sofia Vindish for producing this episode and the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.